Please join me in opening your Bibles to Psalm 139. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that we can sing of your greatness, meditating on and singing of the truth of who you are. Give us wisdom now as we open your word and seek to worship you as we hear what your word has to say. We pray that we would humble ourselves before you and you would direct our thoughts and our minds and our heart for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So our lives are filled with many variables. We can be physically fit, eating right, exercising regularly, and be diagnosed with a debilitating disease. We could be a careful driver or a careful motorcycle rider, and one incompetent driver or drunk driver can bring us down. I am a vigilant driver. I have driven trucks and all kinds of different things, and so I'm a very careful driver, and I was a vigilant motorcycle rider as well. Even the day that I was hit, uh, I was being utterly alert to my surroundings, and in a flash, everything about our lives can change. Now, my life has been minimally impacted. I have pain. Um, what could have happened could have been far more significant based upon the circumstances, and the Lord saw fit to do things differently. But in, a, in an instant, our lives can be utterly, utterly, drastically changed. While life offers so many variables, there is a sovereign God who governs over all of our life and all of our lives. And so those of us who truly know Him are secure in allowing Him to send into our lives what He wills. We're continuing our brief look at Psalm 139 this morning, and what we have noticed thus far is that there should be a willingness for us to be searched by our God because He is a God whose knowledge is intimate in verses 1 through 6. We covered that last week. And He, he is a God whose presence is faithful in verses 7 through 12. We also covered that last week. For this morning, we're going to continue this willingness to be searched by God because our God is a God whose power is sovereign. Our God is a God whose power is sovereign. We'll notice this in verses 13 down through verse 18, which we are going to read now, which we have already read in our responsive reading. God's Word says, For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. 
how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. He uses some great language in here that we will consider uh, this morning. Uh, formed and knitted in verse 13, intricately woven in verse 15. And these, these weavings and formings, intimate as they are, he calls these the works of God in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. This is a Hebrew word that has some depth and breadth to it. I want to talk about it for just a couple of moments. I think that you will um, be enriched as you consider what God is saying about himself through the psalmist. This word formed can refer to the creation of something. It can refer to the possession of something. Or it can refer to the redemption of something. I'm going to share just three verses. They'll be on the screens to my left and right that will demonstrate these three concepts. The creation of something, the possession of something, the redemption of something. All three of these verses we're about to recognize uh, use the same word for formed. In Proverbs 8.22, speaking of wisdom, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. So in creation, God was, was uh, completely possessed with wisdom and knowledge. In Genesis 14 and verse 19, God communicates uh, through uh, Melchizedek and says, He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Look what it says, possessor, there's our word, possessor of heaven and earth. So there's a, a creative element, a possessing element. And now in uh, Exodus 15, take a look at this one on the screen. It says, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are, sti- they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have. And there's the word purchase, that concept of redemption. So it's a pretty full word. The creation of something forming, the possession of something, ownership, and then the redemption of something, paying out something to to redeem it for himself. So there's some pretty uh, great depth and breadth to the word, and he's letting us know that he formed, intimately owns, and has redeemed our innermost parts. It says in, in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. Now, the word in the Hebrew means kidneys. It's like everyone loves a good kidney discussion. It's talking about your, your organs. Your organs. God formed all of the inner workings of your body. It's pretty interesting. He's, he's intimately involved. He goes a step further in the, in the intricacy of his power, not just talking about, well, he generically formed it. He gets more specific, and he says that he knitted me together. Verse 13 again, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then in verse 15 it says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven, intricately woven 
in the depths of the earth. He's talking about God's fine workmanship. The same word for knitted together was used in Exodus 38.18, referring to how God called the people of Israel, really through Moses. Remember um, the, the two men that were given uh, God's spirit to make the fine tapestries for the tabernacle? When God talks about the, the weaving of those tapestries, he uses this word, knitted together. So he's talking about fine, handcrafted workmanship. So the question that we have to ask is, how involved was God or is God in this process? And the psalmist is going to tell us how intimately involved God is. He's already used these words of forming and weaving and intricately weaving, but he goes a step further to help us to understand how involved God is in the forming of an individual. See, today, individuals are not valued to the degree that they ought to be. There are certain ways that our society tries to express a value on human life. And there are ways that our society distinctively does not value human life. Generally at the very beginning of life and the very end of life is where we have a real problem with the way our society handles human dignity. And what we recognize, not only through this text, but many others is that God has formed every human being in His own image, after His own likeness. And so every human being possesses fine, amazing dignity and should be treated as such. This should eliminate racism amongst people that are God-fearing people. We should never be solely about our own variety of people, our own race of people, our own culture of people, because God has distinctively placed His image upon every individual that He has ever made, and this starts before they exit the womb. And this is what this text will tell us very clearly. Take a look, please, at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How involved is God in this process? David tells us, God tells us, from beginning to end. He tells us that his frame, his frame, that's a reference to his bones or his skeletal structure. God is involved in the skeletal structure of the individual. And beyond that, in verse 16, he speaks about God's eyes looking upon my unformed substance. The Hebrew term is golem. Golem. Embryo, embryonic is the idea. God looks upon an individual in its embryonic stage. He's intimately involved from the very beginning of life, from conception. 
and the forming of tissues to the forming of bones and structure. To what? To what end? Is God just an innocent bystander after a person exits the womb? Is He worrying whether a person will get hit by a bus or be stricken with cancer? Is He helpless? Is He helplessly watching as you're diagnosed? Is He helplessly watching as you stumble and fall down a set of stairs? Is He helpless? Too many people in their expression seem to indicate they don't recognize that God is sovereign over our lives from conception until He takes us home. He is sovereign. And for those of us that really know Him, this is of great comfort. It's a source of solace to us in good times and in times of terror. It doesn't remove terror. It doesn't remove pain. It doesn't remove discomfort. But it's a solace in the midst of the difficulty because we know that this was not a mistake, a cosmic accident, a happenstance. Instead, it was a design. God has formed for us our days. Verse 16 says, they are all written. Written. Well, let's, let's try to think about this term written for just a moment. Now, if you write a sentence, you're probably not, you don't consider yourself a writer or an author. However, if you write a book and it is published, you consider yourself an author. And what I would tell you is that God very much is an author of eternity, an author of salvation, and the author of my life. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And so he tells us here that our lives, our days, are authored by God. All of them. Every day of them. Through hard times and joyous occasions. God authors our days. Through pain and sorrow. Through joy and gladness. God authors our days. He is the author of our days. He has formed them for us. We often can use the expression that your days are numbered, uh, but it's not just an expression. God has actually laid out for you a number of days, and He has plans for you in those days. Do you know that? That God has actual plans for you in those number of days He has authored and crafted for you? You don't have to live this life purposeless, not knowing what to do. God has a purpose for you. And your job and my job is to understand that purpose that He has authored for me. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we, this is talking about the church, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, these good works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, this psalm presents God 
as the ultimate sovereign. The ultimate sovereign. His sovereignty is compelling for us because it's governed by his complete knowledge. It is governed by his enduring presence and it is governed by his ultimate power. The question that needs to be answered before we can fully be on board with his supreme governance over us is does he care about me? Does he care about me? Listen carefully. Complete knowledge, inescapable presence, and unlimited power from a detached, impersonal, cold-hearted God would be scary. Now, I like Bill Belichick as the head coach of my football team. I do. But I would hate for him to be in a position of sovereign rulership over my eternal well-being. He's indifferent, at least football-wise. He's cold-hearted, at least football-wise. This is not a denigration of his character. I have no idea what he's like in his personal life. Saying, in, in football terms, he's callous. And if our God, in his ultimate knowledge and enduring presence or inescapable presence and his complete power were cold-hearted and calculating and indifferent toward me, that would be a horrible place to be. But instead, we have clues throughout this psalm and riddling the pages of Scripture telling us of God's relentless love and care for us. Think about what this passage says. Look at verse 5. It says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Look at what it says in verse 10. Uh, We'll start in verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In response to the power of God in creating and and, and governing over his life and, and thinking about him, he says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more than the sand of the sea. And yet, when I awake, I'm still with you. When he thinks of God thinking about him in this mass quantity and knowing him to the nth degree and caring for him in the midst of it, he's overwhelmed that this God of knowledge and this God of presence and this God of power cares for him. This is just from the psalm. How about through the rest of the pages of Scripture? I have just a few for your consideration. In in Exodus chapter 2, now you'll remember when you move at the end of Genesis, you have the people of Joseph, the people of Jacob, the people of Israel, going over to the land of Goshen in the land of Egypt because there was a Uh, There was a a famine, and they were there, and they were being well cared for. Well, you remember, at the beginning of Exodus, another king rose to power that didn't know 
Joseph and he sees this foreigner group growing and outnumbering his people or at least being a threat to his people and so they put them to servitude. This is how Exodus begins. And the people, God's people, are feeling the crunch of this. They're feeling the weight of this and they're distressed. Listen to these words in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and following. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, listen, and God knew. He knew. Well, this is a specific application in a specific time to a specific people group, right? But let me ask you this question. Are you one of his people? Are you one of his people? And when distress comes upon you, you cry out to him, will he not hear you? Will he not fulfill his promises to you? Will he not hear you and know of your distress? See, this is, this is the God that knows everything, that is everywhere, that possesses all power. He's also a God of compassion and care and Fulfilling his faithful promises. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Aren't you so glad to hear that? Haven't you had your heart crushed at times? Haven't you been conflicted, anxious, worried, and distressed at times? And you hear God say, I'm near to those who are crushed. I'm near to those who express their need. This is the God that we worship. I'm going to read one verse in a context, and I'll try to remind you of that context. Jesus is encountered by a rich young ruler, and this rich young ruler approaches him and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen to this passage. It says in Mark 10, 21, and Jesus, looking at him, you say it? Loved him. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. So we have to ask this, what is this love? What is this love being expressed here? Because this rich young ruler obviously enters the scene and departs the scene unredeemed. Because after Jesus says this, he says he went away sad because he had many possessions. He, he enters the scene and leaves the scene unredeemed. And yet, this passage says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And says, you lack something. It seems to me that this concept is that of compassion. This religious young man 
came to Jesus to find out how he could have eternal life. And Jesus told him it's by keeping all of the commandments. And the young man said, oh, I've kept all these from my youth. And then in Matthew 19, the commentary adds this. Uh, The young man asked, what do I still lack? I've kept all these commandments from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus said, I'll tell you what you lack. And now we have to make some, some conclusions because Jesus says what we read. Okay, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, follow me. So here's what I'll tell you is my, my understanding of what Jesus is doing when he tells the rich young ruler he lacks something. He says, I have kept all of those commandments from youth. I've already done all that. Now, I don't think he's necessarily being cocky, but I think he's giving an impression that this is his understanding. He is blameless in the eyes of man. Now, Paul also felt that way in Philippians chapter 3, when, where it comes to the law in the eyes of men. I was blameless. Remember that? So this man says, I've done all of that. And Jesus says, okay, well, let's test this theory out. Are you ready? Let's test it out. Let's see if you've really done this. Because if you're going to get to heaven by your own capability, you're going to have to do, you have to follow the law to the nth degree. All of its implications, all of its invasion into your life, you have to keep it perfectly. So let's test it out. I'll just, I'll just use one of them. Let's see if you love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, why do you have bread and he has none? Why do you have a car and he has none? Why do you have clothes on your back and he has none? If you really love your neighbor as yourself, get rid of everything you have and give it to everyone else and then you can come with me and you can have no place to lay your head at night. And he went away sad because he wasn't ready to do that. And this is just because Jesus teased out one, one of the commandments. One. He didn't tease out all of the commandments. He teased out one of the commandments and its implications were too great for the rich young ruler and he went away unhappy. Jesus isn't telling us, here's the way to heaven, obey the law. He's telling us, you can't ever exhaust the law. You'll never, ever come to its end. You will never satisfy all of the implications of the law. You want to try to, weigh, try to find a way to earn eternal salvation? Not happening. It's true then. It's true now. The man was lost. Jesus had compassion on him by expressing to him his lostness. I was thinking about this. I had the other day, a, uh, I was at a Navy funeral, and one of the guys that I see every now and then was there, and he was telling me that he's being tested for uh, pancreatic cancer, and he's pretty sure he has it um, based upon the things that have come back thus far and what's going on in his body. This immediately produced a compassion within me. I put my hand on his arm, and I started to ask him if he was prepared to meet his creator. Because you know that pancreatic cancer is a death sentence. Are you ready? So we had a conversation from there, and we'll continue to do that. There's a compassion that arises within us when we see a person in their need, and that's exactly what Jesus expresses to this rich young ruler, unredeemed. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So he told him what he needed to hear. See, this is the God of Psalm 139. 
And this is the God who rules over the universe. And this is the God who rules over the United States of America. This is the God who rules over this church. And this is the God who rules over your life. You see, the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And still, ladies and gentlemen, there are so many today who think of God as an intolerant ogre who delights in destroying people's lives. I want to ask you, do you know who God is? Do you know what he is like? Do you know him to be all wise, always present, and almighty? Have you tasted his goodness? Have you tasted his kindness, his patience, his mercy? Have you tasted it? If so, there are two positive responses that this passage gives us. We're in Psalm 139 still. Two positive responses to who God is. The first is we view life in light of our intimate, faithful, sovereign God. Now take a look at verses 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Ooh. Well, let's just skip over those. <laughs> Why is David so passionately angry? You agree he's passionately angry, right? Like, there's no escaping it. Now, this is sacred writing, yeah? Inspired text, which means he's inspired by the Spirit, which means he's not in his flesh speaking words of anger and hatred. He's speaking empowered by the Spirit. And so we have to understand what's going on. Who is he angry at? It says the wicked. Now it can easily be said that all people are wicked, including myself, and that would be true in the sense that we're all sinners. He, however, goes on to describe the characteristics of the wicked ones he is referring to. In verse 20, he says that they speak evil against God. It says, they speak evil against you with malicious intent. Yes? You see it? They take God's name in vain at the end of verse 20. Your enemies take your name in vain. That's one of the commandments. Don't take the Lord your God's name in vain. Right? So they're using God's word, God's name as a swear word, or they're using it uh, empty because they're saying there is no such thing or whatever else they might be saying. These are antagonistic toward God. They hate God, verse 21 says. Do I not hate those who, what does it say? Hate you, O Lord. In fact, they're not just hating God, they're rising up against God in verse 21. Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? He says, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 
So let's pause for a moment and consider. Please listen carefully to my words so that you do not misunderstand what I say. So much of churchianity wants to placate those who rise up against God. When I say placate, let's meet them. Oh, you think this about God? Oh, he's not really like that. And we soften our terms. This is why you don't hear about hell and eternal fire and judgment. We don't hear about sin. We don't hear about the blood of Jesus because we're placating to a world that says that that's gory and ugly. So much of Christianity placates to those who rise up against God. They bend a sympathetic ear to those who speak evil of God. And while we should, and I, I emphasize we should, and we, not only we should, we must be meek and humble and kind and merciful and compassionate, we cannot acquiesce to a world in opposition to God. We cannot. We will not bow the knee to a pagan culture that hates God. We need to view opposition to God the way he does. So I want you to keep, keep listening. Don't start running off on your own thoughts right now. Does this mean I should shut off those who are standing in opposition to God? Should I sever myself off completely from someone who is in, an insolent opponent? It's a good question. David says, I hate those who hate you. I count them my enemies. But I want you to think in even a fuller context than just the one statement. And I want for us to consider it by looking at one biblical illustration. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. So we're going to read the text. And the text is 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. Our main consideration right now will be in verses, uh, verse 13. But I want for us to see the whole of this. This is one of the Apostle Paul's testimonies of God's sovereign grace in his life. Listen to what he says. Verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those 
who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, let's pay attention. Verse 13 describes Paul prior to his conversion, prior to coming into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And listen to what he calls himself, a blasphemer. Blasphemer, one who takes the Lord's name in vain. You see that? He calls himself a persecutor. Could you say that that's one who rises up against God? Yes? And then he calls himself an insolent opponent. Look at the first line there. They speak evil against God. David fits the description, excuse me, Paul fits the description of this person that David hates. So just because he says that I have a complete or a perfect hatred toward those who stand up against God, who speak evil of God, who who are against God, who take His name in vain, who are blasphemous, doesn't mean, folks, that we're hateful to our neighbor, that we're hateful even to our culture. Our culture is lost. They don't have God. How would they ever follow Him? Our our culture can't know God except they turn their eyes upon Him unless the Gospel comes and shines in them and rescues them, illuminating their mind to behold the glory of God. Satan is blinding their minds lest they, they come to conversion. Look at them with compassion and pity. They don't know any better. They're blinded by their sin and they're blinded by their surroundings. Care for them. They need to know who our God is. So, in the face of it, we don't kowtow. We don't acquiesce. We don't change how we communicate who God is. No! They need to know Him so they can be rescued, so their eyes can be opened, and they can have this experience that the Apostle Paul had on that Damascus road where God said to him, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? All you're doing is kicking against a goad. You're hurting yourself. And so God unveiled his eyes. And his life was changed. And so also can every other, any other insolent opponent, any other blasphemer. Give them the gospel and don't don't manipulate it. Don't soft sell it. Give it in all of its glory. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. These are truths that are uncompromising. Everything that God is, He is simultaneously and without interruption forever. Don't soft sell it. This is true all the time. God is also loving and merciful and kind. His kindness leads us to repentance. But do you understand what repentance is? God's kindness leads us to a turning. Because I realize I can't just stay in my sin as is and say, everything will be fine. God will just just overlook all this. No. His kindness leads me to say, I can't stay here. 
This isn't what I want. This isn't what I need. This is not going to help me. I turn from my sin and I say, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And mercy is abundant. See, God is merciful. All of this, we have to read back into Psalm 139. We have to understand it. God is able to give life where there is death. Do not stand in the place of God. Our job is to sow the seed of the gospel with a wide casting zone. We don't have to worry about whether it falls on the hard soil, whether it falls on the thorny soil, whether it falls on the stony soil, whether it falls on the good soil. Just cast the seed. That's our job. And you let God be God. And I wonder, is he still saving people? We're still here, aren't we? If he were none, we would no longer be here. So keep casting the seed. Head back, please, to Psalm 139, just for a moment. I told you there were two responses to understanding who God is in this text. The first was to view life in light of our intimate, faithful, sovereign God. And the second is to place yourself under His sovereign care. Look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me And lead me in the way everlasting. Having considered God's intimate knowledge, His faithful presence, and His sovereign power, and recognized His tender care for us, we can willingly place ourselves under His shepherding care. He's already laid out the number of our days, and He's already laid out a pathway for you Won't you surrender your will to Him? Isn't isn't it logical? Doesn't it make sense to surrender your will to this kind of a God? It does. One day, you will stand before God. Your own righteousness will not cannot meet His righteous standard. This is why Jesus came. He came to provide the forgiveness that we need and the righteous standard that we need. We need to be made perfect through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we come before Jesus and say, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And He says, go your way, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow Me. As we look at that, what we're saying is, all of my resources, all of my ways aren't going to get the job done. There's only one place to go. There's only one place to go to inherit eternal life. And it's not in my stuff. And it's not in my way. It's not in going to church 
or singing songs, and it's not in giving money in the offering plate. It's from turning from your own resources and turning to the one resource that can give you eternal salvation. And that resource is a person, is the person of God's Son and our Savior. If you recognize that this is what you need, that you need to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, after we sing our last song this morning, there will be a number of us in the front here, and we would love to show you from the Bible, how you can have assurance that you will have what you need when you face God one day. For those of us who are born again, we've already trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This text, this passage, is calling for our active surrender. Active, not passive. Active surrender of our will before our all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, and ever-loving God. I want for us, before we sing our last song, to take just a couple of moments to sit in quietness, to pray, to think, maybe even to reflect upon verses 23 and 24, just a couple of minutes, and I will close that time in prayer.